Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Big explosions in space and trying to do citizen science from your own room. Now, some of you might have some time on your hands. We talk about some citizen science projects that helps you explore space and us understand galaxies spiraling arms, plus a really, really big explosion in space and one explosion that quite hasn't happened yet, with scientists trying to figure out why. This week, we look to the stars. Now, one of the things about space is that everything that we can observe in space either is really large or happened a long time ago, and sometimes both. This means we see stars, and though they may appear as pinpricks in the sky, they may be actually galaxies that we're observing. And it's this kind of sense of scale that just makes everything in space research seem incredible. But when scientists say that they've discovered in a distant galaxy cluster the biggest explosion since the Big Bang, you'd think it's hyperbole. But it's actually pretty factual. And it's come from a supermassive black hole all the way at the centre of a galaxy hundreds of millions of light years away. And it's released five times more energy than the previous record holder of largest explosion that we've observed in the universe. And it was discovered by a team of researchers collaborating together called the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research which is a collaboration between telescopes and the research agencies that run those telescopes across the world, from NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory to the European Space Agency's Newton, the Merkison Wide Field Array in Western Australia, and the giant meterwave radio telescope in India. Now, this particular paper was published in the journal, Astrophysical Journal, by a number of key researchers, including Professor Melanie Johnston-Hollett and Dr. Simona Giantucci. Now, these researchers worked together to piece together this puzzle of this incredibly large amount of energy that they saw released. And not only is the explosion really, really big, but it happened really, really slowly and a very long time ago. Now, as you know, when we observe things in space, we are seeing the light or other energy emitted from those objects. And since light and other energy takes time to travel, no faster than the speed of light, it means that when we see something from a really long way away, we can actually tell exactly when it happened. And it had to travel through time to reach us. So in this case, the explosion occurred in the Ophicus Galaxy Cluster, which is about 390 million light years from Earth. And there's a supermassive black hole at the centre of galaxies. And this has been a quite a common thing, especially in some of the larger galaxies, that they have these supermassive black holes right at the centre. Their gravity keeps all the stars surrounding them in the galaxy sort of in orbit around them. And that's how these large galaxy clusters and galaxies can form. A galaxy cluster is the same way a galaxy is a grouping of stars, a galaxy cluster is a grouping of galaxies, all sort of orbiting around each other. Now, this galaxy and this supermassive black hole is of a scale that's much larger than any has been previously observed. So, when it exploded, well, it's quite a large explosion, to say the least. Now, Dr. Simone Giantucci from the Naval Research Laboratory in the United States compares it to the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens, which is a very famous volcano that just blew its entire top off the mountain. Now, in this case... That's exactly what this supermassive black hole has done. It's blown up and punched a hole 
in the cluster of plasma, the super hot gas surrounding the black hole. But unlike removing the top of a mountain, in this particular case, they've actually punched a hole that is equivalent to 15 entire Milky Way galaxies lined up in a row. Now that's a pretty big crater and a pretty big hole. When you think about it, it's hard to get your head around the size of our solar system, let alone the Milky Way, which is where an infinitesimally small speck inside of, let alone 15 Milky Ways. Space is big. And this explosion is able to punch a really, really big hole. Now, the cavity in this cluster of plasma had previously been seen by X-ray telescopes. But scientists didn't know what had caused it, so they just said, well, it must have been some kind of gap. Because the hole was so big that it didn't really make sense that anything could potentially explore, it could cause that. So once they started using radio telescope data to compare with the X-ray telescope data, what they found is this huge amount of energy, which could be observed using the radio telescopes. This energy from the explosion, which researchers like Professor Johnson Hollett were pointing at, actually made it pretty obvious because when you overlay them together, it fit together like hand and glove. Now, that's what pointed out that it had to be an eruption of a giant amount of energy because that's what the radio data was showing. And given the tools like low-frequency radio telescopes, they can observe more and more of these outbursts. And this is pretty exciting because what happened here is there was initial discovery of an interesting stellar phenomena by one technology, in this case, X-ray telescopes. But then when wider telescopes were used with different measuring technologies, in this case, obviously, radio telescopes, they could find out more information. And that more information not only helps explain it in more detail, but it changes our entire understanding of it. Instead of thinking, oh, that's an interesting hole or in the cloud cluster, I wonder why that happened to. That hole was caused by a massive explosion. That is a real difference in understanding. And this multi-wavelength study has made the big difference here. And that's what Professor Johnson Hollett has been really pointing out. She believes that that's only the start of what could be found using this technique applied to a lot of different observatories. And... This was only done using phase one of the Murchison Wildfield Array in Western Australia, because as she points out, that was done using only 248 antennas. That's how a radio telescope works, a lot of distributed antennas. But this one only had 248 in phase one. In phase two, they'll bring up the rest of those antennas online, which includes up to 4,096. And that makes it 10 times more sensitive, which I think you'll agree with her, is pretty exciting. But this is amazing to think about how such a large explosion can use and cause such huge changes across the universe to make can clear space equivalent to 15 times the Milky Way. So when you study things in space, you have to work together in large teams and use really large arrays of telescopes, combining data over disparate amounts of the world, because what you're studying is so incredibly huge, you really need that extra perspective. This is a great international collaboration to try and find the largest explosion in space since the Big Bang.
So you might find yourself at home with a bit of extra time at the moment, and that might give you an opportunity to participate in some citizen science programs. Now, citizen science is, of course, the use of crowdsourced data and data processing to help make scientific discoveries. And there's a number of them, particularly a lot of them are available on Zooniverse.org. Z-O-O-N-I-V-E-R-S-E dot org, which is a platform for citizen science projects. And I encourage you, if you have some time and on your hands and you're stuck at home, it's not a bad way to keep your mind busy and help contribute to active scientific research. But this particular project is about spiral graphs and galaxies. And was recently published an article about it and promoting it in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Now, the principle here is an idea from researchers at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences and a way to graphically and easily measure and understand all the different kinds of structures that make up our galaxies. A spiral, as we talk about, is a pretty common shape in nature, from plants and animals to tropical cyclones, and through the same mechanism that makes a tropical cyclone act the same way, you'll pretty much end up with the same shape in a galaxy. Now, researchers from North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences thought, well, is there an easy way to actually measure and understand these winding arms of spiral galaxies? And they came up with a pretty simple approach. It's called spiral graph. And it's because people are actually pretty good at recognizing patterns. In fact, it's often easier for a human to recognize pattern than a machine. That's why all those capture tests are designed to keep bots and robots out of websites rely on this pattern recognition that humans do pretty well. So if humans do it pretty well, why not get it to help contribute to scientific research? And they're around 70% of the galaxies in our universe, at least in our nearby universe, are spiral galaxies, like our Milky Way. These are galaxies that have these big long arms radiating out from the center. In many of these galaxies, there's a difference in brightness between the windings of the arms, but it's a bit subtle at times. These inter-arm regions, the gaps between these spiral arms, can sometimes be hard to actually see and measure which means it's very difficult for an automated measure to go through all that space data and see how many arms does galaxy have and how wide they are, especially because bright foreground stars can skew off the measurement, especially skew off any automated measurement, because you get one big star and it throws off the whole region. The other problem is that computers have a real big difficulty detecting where the spirals begin and end, especially if there's gaps, whereas a human can fill in the dots, more or less, and make a spiral arm. So that's one of the reasons why, and one of the many reasons why, humans are pretty good at detecting these spiral arms of a galaxy. And, well, this takes another approach and expands out the net to enable more people to get involved. It's pretty much the same as tracing. Ian Hewitt, who's a research adjunct at the museum, along with Patrick Trudart, who's an assistant head of the museum's astronomy and astrophysics lab, tried this method out where they traced onto a drawing or the data to try and see if they could draw out the arms of the galaxy, these windings. They traced out just by eye and see if they could correctly identify. Then they compared it to measurements and models from a lot of specialist design software. And what they found is that, yeah, just a human eye observing and tracing something does pretty well and does fit with the mathematical models, even the ones using complicated measurement software. But the tracing method was by far the most accurate. So with that in mind, 
they basically decided to, well, if human tracing is better than a massive complex piece of software, let's stick with that. So these human generated tracings are used to feed in to the software model. They basically give it guidelines for the automated methods to go and process. So we're not relying solely on random people tracing patterns, but it makes it a lot faster and a lot more accurate by starting at that normal approach using human tracing. Now, one of the important parts that humans get right that the structures don't is what they call the degree of wrapping of the spiral arm, the pitch angle. If a spiral pattern is very tightly wrapped around its arms, there's a really small pitch angle. If a spiral pattern is very open, it has a large pitch angle. Now, that's one of the really important things they're trying to measure. If they can get this measurement of the pitch angle quickly for a lot of different galaxies, they can estimate and understand the way in which that galaxy operates, which could be used to help point telescopes in the right direction to hunt for certain objects, planets, interesting star systems. So this is a great way that people could be involved from their home to help trace out the spiraling arms of galaxies, ultimately to be used to help scientists better understand those galaxies and in order to better aim the telescope and research data to find more exciting things out in our universe. So if you're looking for something exciting to do, well, researchers from the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences have just the Citizen Science Project for you, which you can find again on zooniverse.org. Now, when it comes to big explosions, scientists are patiently waiting for a pretty big one to happen. And that is the star Betelgeuse has been observed to be fading significantly. Late last year, scientists waited with eager anticipation for that red giant to explode into a massive supernova. And that certainly may well be what happens, but we haven't quite had that happen just yet. So the scientists have to wait a bit longer. But whilst they're waiting, researchers from University of Washington and Lowell Observatory are trying to understand exactly what's going on there. And of course, the fact that this red supergiant may turn into a massive supernova certainly may happen. But there might be other reasons why the star is dimming. See, the main supernova hypothesis sort of stems around the fact that if there's a rapid change in brightness levels, it means the star is running out of fuel and will soon go nova. But could there be another cause for the drop in brightness? It's dropped around 40% of its usual brightness, to be clear. And in a paper published in the Astrophysical Journal Letters, Emily Levesque, a University of Washington Associate Professor in Astronomy, and Philip Massey, an astronomer with the Lowell Observatory, have been taking keen observations from Betelgeuse from February 14th and trying to, based on that data, calculate the average surface temperature of the star. Because, of course, if the star is running out of fuel and burning less brightly and burning less hot, you'd expect that to be pretty cold. But what they saw is that the star, the surface of the star, based on the measurements from February 14th, are actually significantly warmer than expected. If the star was rapidly running out of fuel and burning 
pretty softly, then you'd expect the surface of the star to be, comparatively, pretty cool. But that's not what's happening. In fact, it's reasonably warm. So what could be causing that to occur? Well, it may be happening that Betelgeuse, as many red supergiant stars tend to do later in their life, have spun off and spat out some of its extra material from its outer layers. Now, if that happens, and this does happen a lot of the times in red supergiants as part of their life cycle, but what happens to that extra material that's shed off, that outer skin? Well, it condenses around the star as dust, and it cools as it dissipates. These dust grains can, though, start to absorb light and block the view of that star from any other observers. Think about it another way. The star has shed off its outer coat, and that's sort of acting as a shroud, so we see it shining less brightly. doesn't mean the star's not burning, it's just being obscured by all this extra dust clouds. Now, that's one possible explanation. Another way is that there's huge convection cells that are going on under the surface of Betelgeuse, which are drawing up hot material to its surface, which fall back then to the interior as it's sort of running out and burning up all its fuel. And that also may be the case. But that's why measuring the surface temperature of the star is so important. The problem is, measuring a star's temperature is really hard. You can't just point a thermometer at a star and get a reading. But by looking at the spectrum of light emanating from a star, you can work backwards and calculate its temperature. And that's exactly what Professor Levesque and Philip Massey did. Now, the problem is, when you try and point a telescope at a really, really bright star to capture the spectrum you need to figure out temperature, Really bright stars can be so strong that getting a detailed spectrum is really difficult. So they had to use a filter to block out some of the light so they could look exactly for the spectrum they're interested in, which is the titanium oxide molecules in particular. And the reason is titanium oxide can form and accumulate in the upper layers of large cool stars like Betelgeuse, which means that if you spot that spectrum or that light coming through with the signature of titanium oxide, well, you can get a good read on its temperature. So by their calculations and their estimate using this filtering technique, Betelgeuse's average surface temperature on February 14th is around 3,325 degrees Celsius. Now that's very hot, but it's only about 50 to 100 degrees cooler than it had been previously, all the way back in 2004. Now, it's cooled off a little bit, 50 to 100 degrees Celsius. But over 15 years, that's not that bad. Uh, and it's not any, certainly a rapid cooling. It might just be part of the natural fluctuations of the cycle of the star. Now, if there's, like scientists were speculating, these massive convection cells coming from the core of the star up to the surface and sort of circulating these convection patterns, you'd expect to see some spots that are actually hotter than before or variable. But with this 2004 comparison, you can see that the temperature seems to be slightly different, but not really that much different. And it seems to be pretty consistent, not botted or patchworked across the star. So this may put pave, at least for a little bit, some of the speculation about the rapid imminent demise of the star Betelgeuse. It certainly may happen, but maybe just not right away. This research goes to show that predicting the explosions and large events like supernova in our galaxies is a tricky business, and red supergiants like Betelgeuse can be pretty hard to predict. But by taking a number of different measurements, we can get a better understanding. Now, of course, red giants are very dynamic stars, and it may well be still about to explode. But the behavior that we might be seeing here might have other causes. Now, this is a good thing to keep in mind. 
As always, astronomy is big and complex. And this is some great work published in the journal Astrophysical Journal Letters. This has been the Young Scientist of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. Staring into space to try and figure out why an explosion has happened and why one hasn't happened just yet. Plus, doing citizen science to help trace out the spiralling arms of government. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.